Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, we're excited to share a special episode on Africa Day. Celebrated annually on 25th of May, Africa Day commemorates the 1963 founding of the African Union. We are delighted to bring you interviews with Kenya's permanent representative to the UN, Australia's High Commissioner to South Africa, and the Director of the Horn of Africa at Human Rights Watch. First, Lisa Sharland speaks to Ambassador Martin Kamani, the new permanent representative of Kenya to the United Nations. They discuss Kenya's role on the UN Security Council, engaging in multilateralism via Zoom, and counterterrorism. Ambassador Kamani, thank you for joining us on the ASPE podcast today. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure being here. I wanted to start our conversation by talking a little bit about Kenya's current seat as a non-permanent member on the Security Council. Kenya took up the seat at the start of this year in January. Uh, you are Kenya's permanent representative. And I thought it might be interesting to get your assessment of Kenya's priorities as you're on the council for the next two years. Uh, thank you, Lisa. Let me answer that question first by saying Kenya approaches the issue of priorities as an independent and bold African voice. We are here to represent Africa, uh, small island and developing states, uh, and those countries that have had a hard time being listened to on the council. Our specific priorities are regional peace and security, in which we are the chair of the ad hoc working group on conflict prevention and resolution in Africa. Uh, We also uh, are seeking to advance counterterrorism and violent extremism to ensure that the world continues to be focused on this challenge and not to let go. Thirdly, we want peacekeeping operations that are more effective and peacekeepers who are have more safety and security. Australia, as a country that has contributed uh, to peacekeeping operations, knows how crucial it is to keep those troops safe. Uh, Finally, we're trying to move the ball on climate and security, which is a relatively new agenda on the council, not accepted by many, but we think it is a key element in explaining some of the conflicts that we have today. That's a really broad list of of different topics. And of of course, one of the things I think for for council members is all the other items that come onto the agenda. And for those that may not be aware, the council, like most of the world at the moment, has been operating virtually. Diplomats have not been meeting in person. How have you found it coming into that environment as a, a relatively new ambassador to the New York context? What has it been like trying to pursue these priorities and and operate as a member of the council in this virtual environment? Well, I think uh, COVID has been uh, an absolute negative for diplomacy. Um, It has made it more difficult to get to know your colleagues. Uh, So much of diplomacy, especially in settings such as the Security Council, where there's a lot of negotiation and the stakes are very high, really require you to understand who you're dealing with, to make friends, to reach across, to read the body language and the mood in the room. Uh, Very little of that is possible over Zoom. Uh, And with all of you in masks and scared of meeting in the same room. Um, And so I think it has actually detracted from the quality of the Security Council's work. Is it expected that the Council will be meeting again in person in the coming months as New York starts to open up again? Yes. In fact, under the presidency of Vietnam, which was last month, and the presidency of China this month, we've started meeting more often. 
uh, and there's a strong mood in the council to get back to the chamber. Uh, and I personally have never sat in the chamber. And right outside the chamber, there's some pressure cooker conference rooms where you negotiate uh, half the night, if not the whole night. Um, and so we're looking forward to that. One of the, the questions I'm interested in exploring a little bit more with you is the role of what is referred to as the, the A3. So that is sort of the, I guess if I describe this properly, the um, African members of the council sort of bringing together their voice more strongly and putting issues on the table. And we've seen a little bit more in the last few years of the A3 uh, and even the A3 plus working closely together in terms of joint statements and coordinating position, positions, I should say. In your view, how do we ensure that African perspectives are seen more clearly as part of those council debates, which I think is more important than ever, given that so much of the agenda of the council tends to focus on um, events, particularly related to peace and security that are happening on the African continent. You, you know, the, the Security Council is 15 countries that organize themselves across a constellation of, of interests and, 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 and joint focus. Uh, so there's a clear uh, European group, uh, there's the Permanent Five. So the Africa Three uh, are part of that constellation of uniting with fellow people who countries that you see eye to eye with. And what the A3 does is to advance the position of the African Union because Africa has quite a developed peace and security architecture that actually engages quite robustly and does so taking note and understanding the mandate of the Security Council. So our job is to really make sure that the Council and the African Union Peace and Security Council work in greater concert uh, with one another. Now, over the last year, uh, I think history has been made by St. Vincent and the Grenadines uh, from the Caribbean joining us in, in what is called the A3 plus one. And that came from the Prime Minister of the St. Vincent associating his foreign policy with the African Union, which has a sixth region, which is the African diaspora uh, outside the continent. So that was quite a historic move and has meant there are now four countries that are broadly aligned uh, on pursuing the African agenda. Where do you think, in terms of the, the A3 and the A3+, plus in the last few months when Kenya's been on the council, where do you think they've had a particularly strong voice in influencing the debate? Across a range of issues, but I would point out in particular the majority of what the council deals with is on the African continent. So from Libya to the Sahel to the Horn of Africa, the A3 uh, work together. And our joint statements mean that we also have joint negotiating positions. Uh, and so I would say that we've had a significant impact uh, in the Horn of Africa, and in the Sahel, and in pushing uh, the AU's agenda uh, in Libya. One of the things you mentioned there that a lot of the council's agenda is not so much the priorities that members come onto the council with, but uh, a lot of things that come before the council, which are sort of routine. And we've seen that, you know, even in the last few weeks, there's been a number of country-specific situations, um, I'm, I'm thinking immediately to the Middle East at the moment, where the council has struggled to find consensus and agreement on, on issues. What do you see as some of the most challenging issues before the Security Council at the moment? I think it's really simple. Uh, the Council has a hard time uniting around urgent, uh, urgent matters. 
in a way that is reflective of the positions of some of the permanent five. And so you will find on a host of issues um, the emergence of a sort of gulf uh, within those permanent five. Uh, and when that happens, it really affects the entire work of the council. So for instance, in the last week, there was a lot of work done to try and have the council make a united statement on the violence that was going on in uh, especially the Gaza uh, and and Israel. Uh, and that proved to be very, very difficult because of lack of agreement on how to go about that. And that just reflects not just that situation, but that has happened in several other files. Uh, and that makes it very difficult to move uh, the council. I think it's it's certainly the most visible aspect of the council, unfortunately, tends to be when, when there's disagreement as opposed to a lot of the work that, that takes place where there is a lot of consensus. I mean, I think particularly to peacekeeping missions and things like that, where the council seems to reach reach agreement on a routine basis. I wanted to take a step back. Before you took up this position as Kenya's permanent representative, you were Kenya's ambassador for counterterrorism. And this year marks 20 years since 9-11 uh, and also where a lot of the architecture that we've seen globally, particularly within the UN system, has started to develop around counterterrorism activities. In the context of, of Africa, and, and, and I note in particular that Kenya, of course, has had its own experiences with uh, numerous terrorist attacks over the last few years. What do you think some of the lessons are that we've learned over these last two decades when it comes to addressing the threat of terrorism? And what do you think we are getting right in terms of our approach globally? And what do you think perhaps we, we need to focus a little bit more on? I think if we... If uh, if the crafters of the counterterrorism architecture of uh, after nine eleven knew what we know today, they would have understood that they were crafting an architecture for the long term, because it has turned out that Al Qaeda, amongst other groups, have become far more resilient, and this has become a protracted campaign against these groups. Um, and that protracted campaign has been caught up by many other events, including eventually the rise of new geopolitical interests by the major countries that were prosecuting the counterterrorism fight. And 20 years later, uh, we cannot say that jihadist terrorism has been defeated. Uh, but what we can say is that countries have learned a considerable amount about how to disrupt and fight it. Um, but it has become more of a chronic condition where the aim now for many countries is to minimize the damage while seeking to um, uh, continue fighting these groups. Uh, and in, 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 in different parts of Africa, uh, these groups have made a considerable uh, headway. Uh, and so today I would say that we have more chapters of Al-Qaeda affiliates or splinter groups uh, operating globally than was the case 20 years ago. And the character of, of, of terrorism has also changed in that time from a relatively narrow, I don't want to call it elite activity, but, but it, it was narrow and it, it was small, very choosy about who it accepted, very choosy about how it prosecuted and planned its attacks to a much greater democratization, uh, to use that word of, of terrorism, and also a much greater ability to embed their ideology within local dynamics. 
I think that's certainly something that, um, well, certainly during your term on the the council, I imagine that a number of countries are going to continue to grapple with as we look back and, and consider where that threat is going to continue to evolve in the years ahead. One final note I, I wanted to finish on for our conversation is to talk a little bit about the relationship between Australia and Kenya. We first had the opportunity to meet um, many years ago as part of an Australia-Africa dialogue that we we hosted with Aspie and the Brenthurst Foundation. And I wanted to get your own thoughts on where you think opportunities exist for Australia and Kenya to cooperate, and particularly in terms of strengthening efforts to support the UN and the multilateral system. Well, um, there's definitely a lot of work we can do on uh, the strengthening of the multilateral system, Uh, but that will always be there. And uh, I think we collaborate quite positively on that. Um, I think on a bilateral basis, we can do a lot more uh, together on maritime security. Uh, We can do a lot more together in the Indian Ocean that we share. I think we can do a lot more in terms of mineral development and exploitation in a sustainable and transparent way. I think the standards that Australia has uh, in the the mineral space and in the natural resources space, I, I think those standards would probably fit very well in the sustainable model that Kenya is looking to entrench in our own uh, minerals and natural resources sector. I think we can do a lot more on counterterrorism together. Now, I understand Australia uh, is not close uh, to Kenya and has its own uh, particular threat uh, perceptions um, that are not as pronounced when it comes to the Horn of Africa. But certainly in terms of know-how, skills, um, I think we can do a lot more together. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Kamani. I think that's that's an excellent note to finish on in terms of putting a challenge out there to policymakers where we can be working together a little bit more on some of these pressing security issues, but also around sustainable development as well. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you for the invitation. Brendan Nicholson speaks to Australia's High Commissioner to South Africa, Gita Kamath. They discuss Australia's economic ties with South Africa, the impact of COVID-19 on the region, and the effectiveness of groupings such as the Southern African Development Community and the Southern African Customs Union. Well, hi, Commissioner, good morning, and thanks very much for sparing us the time to have a chat with you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm always happy to talk about Africa. Well, yes, I spent 12 years as as a young journalist working in various parts of Africa, including South Africa and Southern Africa, Mozambique and whatever, so I'm fascinated by the place. How can the relationship between Australia and South Africa be enhanced? You know, both are, for instance, resource-rich nations with strong mining industries, and might there be room for greater cooperation there? And what about in areas such as health and education? Well, look, we have a a significant trade and investment relationship with South Africa. I think many Australians are always surprised when I go through the statistics, so I'm going to do that now. South Africa, it's the most advanced industrialised economy on the African continent. It has a mature, well-regulated financial sector, a, a very sophisticated manufacturing base. It is, for example, one of the few African countries that's manufacturing COVID vaccines, and it has really good infrastructure, transport infrastructure. So so I think that there's definitely scope to increase cooperation in the area of trade and investment. And you mentioned mining, Brendan, and yes, we are both strong mining nations. Australian companies collectively are the largest foreign investor in South Africa's mining sector. But I think, you know, our investment goes 
beyond mining. So we have strong two-way, a very strong two-way investment relationship with South Africa. We're the seventh largest foreign country investor here. But what often surprises people is that is the level of the investment. So we're investing more in South Africa than we are in Thailand and Vietnam. And particularly what's surprising is the amount of South African investment into Australia. It's tripled since 2013, and it's now over $8 billion Australian dollars. And we are getting more foreign direct investment from South Africa into Australia than we are from India, Indonesia, and the UAE. Uh, and indeed, our total bilateral investment is now greater than Australia's total bilateral investment with Indonesia, Thailand and Vietnam. And it's what's surprising is it's, it's across a diverse range of sectors. So you'd expect resources and energy, including actually renewable energy, but it's also in areas like retail, financial services, food and agriculture and commercial property. And as trade often follows investment, it's then not surprising to see that on the trade front, South Africa makes up more than a third of all of our trade with Africa. And um, our key exports are aluminium and coal, but people are often surprised to hear that the key export from South Africa to Australia is in fact motor vehicles. And that underlines, as I said, the, you know, the significant manufacturing capability in South Africa. So I think there's potential to increase our trade and commercial cooperation in areas such as METS, which we call mining, equipment, technology and services, but also beyond that. But what accounts for this rather surprising trade investment statistics uh, well, South Africans are now the seventh largest migrant group in Australia. And I think that, you know, these bonds and diaspora connections, you know, promise to stand the relationship, the bilateral relationship, but also our cooperation in good stead government. An example I often like to use is the Australian clothing retailer Cotton On, which has 150 stores in South Africa, including its largest store in the world. So anyone with a teenage daughter will know about Cotton On. But when I went and visited them at their um, headquarters in Geelong before I came out here on posting to Pretoria, I asked them, well, why on earth did you go into South Africa? It's really surprising. And they said, well, they'd had a senior employee who was originally from South Africa who came to work for them. And this person had significant retail experience working in South Africa and convinced them and supported them to enter the market. So that's an example of how diaspora connections can help to grow trade and investment. That's fascinating, Gita. But you're also High Commissioner or our senior representative in other countries in Southern Africa, including Angola, Botswana, Eswatini, Lesotho, and Mozambique. Uh, Eswatini, which used to be Swaziland until not that long ago. How has the COVID pandemic impacted these nations, and can Australia help them reduce the damage that's being done? Look, COVID has had a, a profound impact here, and it's particularly because of the impact it's had actually in South Africa. So of all the countries in Africa, South Africa has been the worst affected by COVID. It's recorded more than um, 1.6 million cases and more than 55,000 official deaths. But if you look at the total number of actual deaths that can be attributed to COVID here, it's estimated at more than 130,000 people. And unfortunately, we're currently on the verge of a third wave in South Africa. So new cases are back to um, several thousand a day. And yesterday, the daily positivity rate reached 10%. And so the social and economic impact is huge and it's be it, it goes beyond the borders of South Africa because South Africa plays such an important economic role here as a sort of regional economic anchor for its neighbouring countries. And we, we cover seven of them, as you say, from here in Pretoria. So the South, the South African economy has really been hit. The, the, it, it contracted by 7% GDP last year. Official unemployment's now over 32%. And what we're seeing is that downturn is going to have significant consequences for the socioeconomic development of its neighbouring countries. 
even though the rates of COVID in those countries have been much less smaller than in South Africa. So what can we do? Well, we're supporting um, vaccine supply through the COVAX vaccine facility. Australia's contributed um, $18 million to COVAX and um, vaccines funded under this facility are being supplied to countries in Southern Africa. Um, but I think it's also important to ensure that COVID doesn't overshadow other important health issues in, in this part of the world. So HIV AIDS is a really big concern in Southern Africa where we have some of the highest rates of HIV prevalence in the world on a per capita basis. And uh, Australia continues to be a strong financial contributor to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB and malaria. And interestingly, we're currently co-chairing with Namibia the UN high-level meeting on HIV AIDS. And we want to ensure that, ensure that working with Namibia, we, we reach as an outcome of this conference a strong political declaration that's going to set us up well for a global strategy over the next five years that can make progress towards the goal of ending HIV as a public health threat by 2030. The other thing in Southern Africa that's really going to have a big impact for the, uh, this part of the world is climate risk. Uh, it's something that they share with Australia. Uh, we have shared climate challenges, but we also have opportunities to share expertise and knowledge in support of climate action. And a very nice example of cooperation in this area is with Botswana, where we're actually bringing together Indigenous fire management techniques and modern science as a conservation and uh, greenhouse gas abatement tool. It's a program known as the International Savannah Fire Management Initiative. And we have communities, Indigenous communities from the Kimberley region in the northern Australia who are transferring their knowledge about Indigenous fire management practices to communities in Botswana who have lost some of that knowledge. And so through reinvigorating these practices, we're assisting Botswana to, to mitigate climate change and improve um, how it protects its, its wildlife and biodiversity. I think one of the biggest contributions we can make to COVID recovery is by supporting economic growth. Uh, in this region through trade and investment. And I've already spoken about, you know, our relationship with South Africa in this regard. But a good example in Angola is an Australian company which has a licence to start phosphate production. So it's essentially a mining company. But phosphate is obviously a very important um, ingredient for agriculture. And Angola has huge agricultural potential. It's got abundant supplies of water and it's looking to diversify away from oil. So we can bring our mining and agriculture expertise to help Angola build this industry and contribute to its economic development. Well, that's extraordinary. And the, um, the idea that Australian Indigenous people communicating directly and contributing to Indigenous people in Botswana, amazing and uplifting. It's lovely. It's a great example of cooperation. How effective are organisations such as the Southern African Development Community, the Southern African Customs Union, and the African continental free trade area proving to be? And, and well, is there a relationship there for Australia? Okay, well, look, a lot of people haven't heard about SADC, the Southern African Development Community. It's headquartered in Botswana. We don't have a, a, a formal relationship with SADC in the way that we do, for example, with ASEAN. Like We have a, a strategic partnership with ASEAN. We have a bilateral ambassador accredited to the organisation. We tend to pursue our relationships with static countries bilaterally rather than working through static. 
but it is nevertheless a significant sub-regional organisation. And there are a number of sub-regional organisations in Africa. This one represents Southern African countries. I think there's a, a strong sense of solidarity between SADC members. And, and currently, for example, you know, SADC is considering how it might develop a regional response to support Mozambique in dealing with the insurgency in the northern part of that country, in Capo Delgado. Um, and it's going to be holding an extraordinary summit of its double troika next week to actually consider this very issue. So we, along with the rest of the international community, will be looking to see what comes out of that. And you mentioned SACU. That's another important but even probably less well-known sub-regional organisation, the Southern African Customs Union. So it's made up of a subset of SADC members and it's headquartered in Windhoek in Namibia. It provides for a um, common external tariff and, um, and it enables duty-free trade between the member countries. So all the revenue is then collected, it's paid into a common fund and then it's shared among the member countries based on a formula that takes into account their share of the trade. But importantly, it also takes into account their development needs. So the, the revenue from this organisation is a really quite an important source of financial support for the smaller members of SACU and particularly during the COVID economic downturn. So South Africa is the core member of SACU. Obviously, most of the tariff revenues are collected by trade with South Africa. Um, but in addition, from the beginning of this year, you mentioned, um, Brendan, um, the African continental free trade area. So trading has started under that free trade agreement at the beginning of this year. And that, that should really be of significant interest to Australian exporters and investors over the longer term as it develops. And I think that like SACU, this is going to continue to enhance South Africa's uh, status as a launching pad for, for business operations into Africa. Look, on the subject of the insurgency in northern Mozambique, a neighbour of South Africa, obviously, you know, how concerned are you about attacks by groups that are believed to be affiliates of the Islamic State terror group, who, and they actually captured the northern Mozambican city of Palma recently? And we've seen similar violence far to the north in Africa. Is it likely that such violence is actually working its way south? Look, yes, certainly, look, the attack on Palmer was a wake-up call to the region and, uh, you know, to the international community more broadly. And I think the fact that expats were caught up in that violence um, and it, it took place on an area called the Afangi Peninsula, which is where the planned international LNG projects are being built, that really focused international attention on the threat posed by the insurgency and the, the French company Total, which is leading the project, it, it's pulled out all of its staff, it's declared force majeure, uh, and it's unlikely to return for some time. But at the same time, this is not a new conflict. It's, it's a conflict that, that began in, over four years ago in October 2017. And while I think Palmer caught international attention, particularly because there were expats involved, this was not the first time that the insurgents demonstrated their ability to conduct attacks of that nature. So last year, we actually saw attack, an attack on a coastal town called Mathimbo de Praia, which we understand that the insurgency still, still holds parts of that town. And that showed a very, you know, a significant level of planning and tactical sophistication. So it, the insurgency remains a serious concern. It's led to a humanitarian crisis. There's over half a million internally displaced people. And it's also a region that's already prone to, to natural disasters such as cyclones. So it's certainly harming Mozambique's economic prospects and it's and it's a risk to international interests in the region and we do have some Australian mining companies in the area. We haven't seen much evidence though of the violence spreading beyond the northeast of Capo Delgado. So Capo Delgado is in the northernmost province of 
uh, Mozambique near the border with Tanzania. It's the least developed province. And I think, you know, if you look at the main drivers of the insurgency, it's actually local factors. So economic deprivation, you know, perceptions of discrimination, poor governance. But, you know, that said, the insurgency does have uh, regional and international links. Uh, we've seen, you know, the internally displaced people which are, who are moving across um, the country and causing, you know, exacerbating humanitarian crisis, putting more pressure on the local authorities and also on international aid agencies. There is some evidence that um, non-Mozambicans are amongst the insurgents, but mainly from other African countries, as well as some reports of people from the Middle East. The weapons and funding that the insurgency uh, appears to have suggests it's being resourced in part from outside um, Capo Delgado. But it's long been an area that's associated with criminal activity and organised crime, especially, you know, smuggling and trafficking of things like drugs and gemstones, weapons, even human trafficking. And most of that is goes to, you know, it's destined for South Africa before it's then shipped elsewhere. So, so I think while you can draw parallels between the insurgency in Capo Delgado and conflicts elsewhere in Africa, and, and while they're are certainly, you know, some regional elements to the conflict. Our assessment is that at the moment, a wider conflict in the country or one elsewhere, moving elsewhere to southern Africa, linked to this insurgency in Capo Delgado, our assessment is that that's unlikely at this stage. But even so, the picture is concerning, definitely. And, uh, and we see few grounds to believe that uh, the situation will improve in the near term. Uh, Commissioner, that's been very comprehensive and thank you very much for your time. Great to get to talk to you. Oh, it's a pleasure, Brendan, and uh, I really enjoy listening to your podcast. In November last year, the Ethiopian government launched a military offensive in the country's northern Tigray region. ASPI research intern Kwesi Konyana speaks to Letitia Bader, Director of Horn of Africa at Human Rights Watch. Letitia describes the ongoing humanitarian crisis its geopolitical implications for neighbouring countries and the responses from different multilateral institutions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Letitia. I'm interested to hear your thoughts and perspective on the ongoing Tigray crisis and what are the regional implications. So, as we know already, the security and humanitarian situation in Ethiopia's Tigray region has rapidly worsened since November last year. Communication infrastructure is down and the federal government has imposed strict lockdown protocols, which is essentially shutting the international community off from examining the extent of the humanitarian crisis. So, Letitia, what does your organisation know and what are they hearing from the ground? Yes, well, thank you very much for, for having me on. I mean, the we are now six months into this conflict. The first two months were very much in the dark. Um, the government has, as, as you mentioned, cut down communications. The internet is still down in the region. Uh, telephone communications continue to be cut off. So this is very much a conflict, which is incredibly difficult for uh, the media, but also for organizations like ourselves to document in real time. What we know is that there is now ample evidence of incredibly serious crimes which have been committed. And it's at this point very difficult to see how any section of the civilian population in Tigray has been left unscathed. We've documented how the initial attacks on regional towns, but Ethiopian government forces and their allies 
were conducted indiscriminately, in which civilians were killed, injured, civilian buildings were targeted, which led to the beginning of what is now a massive internal displacement of the civilian population in the region. It also left thousand fleeing into neighboring Sudan. So to your question of the regional implications, one of them is that Sudan is now hosting a refugee population of around 60,000 Tigrayans from, from the region um, of Tigray and Ethiopia. In terms of abuses, we've also been documenting indiscriminate killings of civilian populations in the aftermath of heavy fighting. So we documented, for example, 10 days of horror in the very historic UNESCO heritage site town of Aksum. Now this happened in late November where Ethiopian and Eritrean forces, so one of the complexities of this conflict is that the Ethiopians are fighting alongside Eritrean forces, alongside regional forces from the Amhara region of Ethiopia. So you have a multitude of actors who are currently involved and engaging in the fighting. So in Aksum, the Ethiopian Eritrean forces took the town again indiscriminately shelling the town and then for a week pillaged the town. Now this has really been one of the trends we have seen throughout the region has been the pillaging by warring parties of public infrastructure, hospitals have been left in ruins, um, but also private property. In the town of Axum, we collected witness testimonies of seeing primarily Eritrean forces looting children's toys from people's homes, bicycles from people's homes, everything. Um, and then after this, the Ethiopian forces actually pulled out for several days and there was a bout of fighting between local Tigrayan militia, members from the, the, of, of the civilian population who joined the fighting against the Eritreans. And then for 24 hours, Eritrean forces massacred members of the civilian population, primarily young men and boys, but also elderly um, women and, and, and children. Now, I mean, this was a particularly horrific incident, but unfortunately we have seen similar incidents happening again and again at the hands of the Eritrean forces, but also at the hands of the Ethiopian forces. To expand on your last point, the Eritrean government mentioned approximately last month that they would be pulling out of the Tigray region and Ethiopia in general. Have they kept that promise? We are not seeing any signs whatsoever of the Eritrean forces leaving the region. I mean, right now they are present, occupying large sways of, of, of the region. And, and here we're not only just talking about areas along the Eritrean border, we're talking about regions completely inland. Um, they are and they remain one of the key occupying forces in, in, in the region. Um, at the same time, there is very clear evidence right now that the Eritrean forces are amongst the main actors blocking humanitarian access. There was a period about six weeks ago where humanitarian access had improved. But in the last month, um, the UN and other international humanitarian NGOs, including um, Doctors Without Borders, which was really one of the NGOs which was on the ground from the beginning, which was managing to negotiate access, are ringing the alarm bell that their access has been restricted again. So we're also talking about a humanitarian crisis, which is in many ways man-made as a result of actions of warring parties on the ground.
And as the crisis continues to expand, what should multilateral institutions, more specifically the African Union or the UN Security Council, react and respond to the crisis? I mean, unfortunately, whether it's the AU, the African Union, um, but also the UN Security Council, the action has been very limited so far. I mean, in the early days of the conflict, the AU actually sent a very high-level team of envoys to Ethiopia to seek to offer a mediation role. This was rejected by the Ethiopian government at the time. Um, since then, we haven't seen as much action on the part of the AU at all. Um, more positively, recently, the African Commission on Human and People's Rights have said that they will be trying to send in an investigation team into the region. The, the details of what that would look like, what they would focus on and what access they would be getting and the, the outcome is, is still unknown. At the level of the UN Security Council, I mean, what's very clear is that Ethiopia has and, and the region in, in the, the situation in Tigray has has fallen in some ways victim to dynamics, broader dynamics at the Security Council. Um, what we have seen is for months, it was only discussed as an AOB, so behind closed doors. There were no statements which came out from those discussions. Um, and this was very much largely as a result of China and Russia um, not wanting to move the, 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 the discussion to a more public standing order um, agenda item. We did finally see a positive statement which came out, um, could have been better, but did underline some key human rights concerns, which is positive. But we've not really seen that yet materialize into concrete action. On the other hand, I mean, I would say the European Union from very early on has been taking measures to put the Ethiopian government um, and warring parties under more pressure to bring uh, the parties to, to the negotiation um, table, which is obviously one of the key diplomatic calls, but also has been underlying the human rights situation. And the US government, since the Biden administration took over, has been much more publicly, proactively, they have appointed a special envoy, really trying to make this a priority and, and calling explicitly on warring parties to end the abuses on the ground. I mean, their focus has been primarily on the Eritrean forces, the abuses by the Eritrean forces, at least publicly, but, but they are also playing a key role and they've also played an important role at the Security Council to make sure Ethiopia isn't, is, isn't being ignored. But, but as I said, I mean, you know, we now have a joint Ethiopian UN investigation, um, which is on the ground as we speak. Um, given the gravity, the magnitude of the abuses, the complexities of the crimes, the multitude of actors, we continue to call for a full-blown international investigation into events on the ground. Um, but for the moment, we haven't yet seen the public comments of bilateral and individual states really materialize into a, a strong investigation um, instrument um, to document these crimes. As you mentioned, the responses by different international organizations and different governments has been haphazard. There hasn't been a coherent form, such as the UN Security Council, as um, they're being undermined by China or Russia. What alternative instruments do we have which can stop Ethiopia's continual human rights violation? 
But we obviously also have the Human Rights Council in Geneva, where you have many other states who are involved. We have been pushing for the Human Rights Council to include Ethiopia on the agenda. At the moment, it's not even a formal standing item on the agenda of the Human Rights Council, even though we are talking about a crisis in which the human rights abuses are, are very much central to how warring parties have been conducting their fight in the region. Um, so, I mean, that would be one very obvious area where the, the, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights can also, by herself, establish investigations. The Human Rights Council can call on the office to establish standing mechanisms. So that there are a whole range of um, steps that could be taken in Geneva at the Human Rights Council. But that will, of course, require support from a whole range of regional blocs. Um, that there is no doubt that there are, I mean, the, the, the EU has been um, definitely pushing some of these agenda items, but there are also divisions within the European Union, certain states preferring to uh, continue to put diplomatic pressure behind closed doors. So, so there is on, on a whole range of levels in in terms of the African group um, at the level of the Security Council. The A3, the three African states, have actually played a positive role. Were keen to see a public statement coming out, but we now need to also see an African group at the level of the Human Rights Council agreeing to push for Ethiopia to be on the agenda. So there are many balls up, up in the air right now, um, but there is no time to waste. And I think the problem right now we are seeing is despite now much greater international condemnation, we are not yet seeing the sort of actions which could serve as a role to prevent further abuses because these forces are still acting within a context of, of largely complete impunity. Leticia, unfortunately we are running out of time. I can speak to you about this all day. Um, just want to leave on your final thoughts. What is the Human Rights Watch calling for to stop the ongoing crisis in the region? I mean, we're calling for a full-blown international investigation, inquiry into abuses by all parties to the conflict to pave the way for real accountability. Um, and, and, and there is no doubt, I mean, this is something which the victims continue to call for. I mean, part of the, the communications blackout is that many victims on the ground felt that the world was completely ignoring them. So time and again, we, we would speak to individuals, survivors of abusive, who basically say, we thought no one was listening to us at all. And I think, you know, strong statements are important, but I think for, for the communities whose lives have been turned upside down, they need to see concrete action, which lead to an improvement, both in the humanitarian access, so that's in terms of humanitarian, um, a lifting of restrictions, the communications block out being ended and lifted so that communities can speak to their loved ones throughout the world, because obviously this has a massive impact on, on, on people's realities, um, but also to see that those responsible for these horrific crimes will, will, will be brought before justice. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We hope you enjoyed this special. We'll be back with another episode next week.